Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Radio Motherboard is brought to you by Casper. Sleep is a pain in the ass, but you shouldn't have your mattress to blame. Try Casper. It's one perfect mattress made in the USA just for you. With free shipping, free returns, and a whole 100 nights to try it out. Yeah, that's right. You can actually take this thing for 100 test sleeps to decide if you love it. Check it out at Casper.com. Make sure you use code VICE. That's V-I-C-E for $50 off any mattress. This is Jason Kepler, and welcome to Radio Motherboard. I've got Brian Merchant here and Lorenzo Franceschi Beecherai. No, come Hello. on. I did it right. Beecherai? No. Beecherai. Beecherai, but the rest was good. I said I, it right, though, didn't I, Lorenzo? Uh, yes, but you had a lot of practice, I think. <laughs> so, Lorenzo and Brian are our two dystopian writers. Lorenzo is covering our current dystopia in which everything gets hacked all the time and nothing is safe and your privacy is getting invaded constantly. Right now, you're getting hacked right now. Yes. Somewhere, somehow. Isn't and that right, Lorenzo? Brian is constantly predicting the demise of humanity, the earth, etc. through his speculative fiction uh, vertical that he runs called Terraform and through his journalistic enterprises, which commonly uh, are about climate change and other things that yeah, are bad. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I write about dystopia sometimes as well. Anyways, we are going to talk about World War Three, a war that may already be underway if you uh, subscribe to such thoughts. I don't know if you think the current conflict in the Middle East constitutes World War Three. Probably not, but maybe the beginnings of something like that. Who knows? Could be. It's pretty pretty violent. A lot of conflict right now. What? A lot of things, like a lot of like hairline fractures that definitely seem like they could spread out and to to be on the region. So, yeah, I think it's fair to say that it's troublesome. What are people fighting over today, Brian? Man, what aren't people fighting over today? There's, uh, you know, the, the religious fundamentalism usually gets the headlines uh, these days with ISIS because it's such a sort of straightforward kind of villainy, right? They're, they are evil. They make videos and disseminate them dis- depicting acts of barbarity and depravity. And they try to, you know, they, they put them on social media. They disseminate this. They're waging a campaign of fear. They are evil. They're like the face of evil. So that's what we tend to fixate on. But 
you know, as usual, there's so, so many things going on behind the scenes, things that led to mm-hmm. conflicts starting, maybe even led to the genesis of things like ISIS. And there's a lot of factors, ecological, geopolitical, you know, economic. There's tons of things. And one, one thing that I think about a lot is climate change. So we'll probably get into that later. But Yeah, I mean, I, that's what I was referencing directly. I mean, it's hard to say whether things like water shortages and drought and, you know, lack of food have led to kind of direct war, if you want to call it that. But it's certainly led to a lot of um, internal conflict in certain uh, countries and perhaps, you know, some civil wars or at least tensions. Yeah. And uh, that's something that you've covered many times. Yeah, definitely. I think one of the... One of the least covered and most overlooked stories kind of about, uh, again, people look at the politics and they look at the public facing materials and they look at the technology. But one of the, I feel like, most overlooked elements in these wars, particularly in Syria, which is kind of like the hotbed for conflict right now, of course, and the most tragic, the most devastated uh, one of the, ca- I mean, it wasn't necessarily a primary factor. It's hard to pull anything out in particular. But one of the things that was going on in Syria right before the the uprising that led to the civil war, that led to the collapse, that led to ISIS, was uh, was climate change has really already had a pronounced effect in the region. And one of the things that happened was there was a drought all around, uh, you know, Syria's farmlands. So you had a couple years where there were severe water shortages and a lot of these uh, farmers and, and subsistence farmers and people who had relied on farming for crop and for income and for all that uh, could no longer make a make a living or feed their families so they you know they migrated into the cities where there were not enough jobs and that kind of was one of the factors leading to sort of the 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 boiler room that sort of situation that you know that uh, needed some kindling in the form of you know low low i mean high food prices rather but it, things just exploded it, you know it would it created the tinderbox in a sense or it was one element that created that so that's something that i think we could see not just in the middle east but all over the place we see how dry california is now and you know we're a rich country right now uh, but you know there's a lot of places that aren't so fortunate Brazil has a huge drought problem in Sao Paulo. Big cities grappling with drought, and it's only going to get worse. I mean, you're already seeing tensions in the United States over the California drought. I mean, I don't foresee them approaching anything resembling war. But, you know, you have the rich trucking in water, and you have, you know, the rich people don't want to do these, like, water cutbacks that, you know, the government is demanding there. So there's certainly, I mean, you can see that tension happening in the United States. And then when you take a place that's affected by perhaps even more severe drought and, you know, still developing, still kind of poor, it's like magnified. Yeah, exactly. You know, you let weaker institutions, less trust in the government, less, uh, yeah, less wealth, more poverty. Um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of things that can go wrong really fast. And you're right. You do see it. It's ugly. It's really ugly. Even here in the U S with, there was that just terrifying Washington Post article about that you know rich community in California that was the quotes were like from these barons who were like literally like 
we could do whatever we want with our water. And they cranked up the spigots. I think the rest of the, the state had decreased their water usage by something like 13%, something fairly dramatic, like that took effort and cooperation. And this one county, which had actually raised their water usage by 9%, in the same period, just, you know, no one knows exactly why, but just to sort of flaunt the restrictions to just kind of like demonstrate their wealth. It, it, I mean, things like that, like are bound to eventually in one way or another, it's obviously probably not going to result in armed conflict, but these are the kind of things that get ugly really fast. And in other places, you know, maybe... And maybe, who knows, maybe if income inequality continues apace in 50 years, California is still a dry, you know, desert land. I know we're going to get into some science fiction talk here, but one of the books that I'm reading right now is The Water Knife, uh, which is by, oh man, I'm going to get his name wrong, but Paolo B- Bacigalupi, I think, is his name. He, he wrote The Wind-Up Girl, which is, takes place in Thailand, but he talks about climate change, and it's about a future in the southwest where everything's dried up and it really sets the stage for some gaping uh chasms of inequality and violence and and, you know that kind of thing yeah i mean the i think a point an important point that um, we should make is that all all wars or pretty much all wars throughout history have been fought over resources um or at least resources was like um, one of the underlying reasons for any for all the wars, and you know, if you think of a future where water is scarce, um, that's definitely, you know, it's easy to imagine a war happening because of uh, the scarcity of water or any other uh, natural resource. Right, and whether whether it's a civil war or not, I mean, you have countries in the Middle East, and you know, climate change is going to affect poorer countries harder than it is us which is unfortunate because they had less to do with it. Um, You know, when you have entire countries that don't have water resources, then that's when you start getting, you know, invasions of other countries and that sort of thing. Yeah. I do think that, you know, we're not immune. I mean, we do, we're talking about ideology. I I do think that, you know, we are sort of, you know, we are, a rich country and we do have a lot of nice things and we do have a very technologically advanced society. So it's, it is very difficult for us to, you know, even con, you know, like we, we all are kind of doing it instinctively notice like, Oh, it probably won't happen here. It couldn't happen here, but you know, it, it's not unfathomable is the thing somewhere like the, the American Southwest, which is just has this labyrinthine sort of, network of moving water in particular, but resources in general to keep places like Las Vegas, Phoenix, Los Angeles afloat. You know, it's a, it, the infrastructure is a sprawling sort of network of, of pumping water in, moving it around, distribution, you know, who gets what, and it's, and it's all, you know, fairly tenuous. And if things get drastic, a lot of people are, you know, a lot of scientists worry that we're not just in the middle of a drought and the worst drought you know, of the decade, a lot of people worry that we are in the beginning of a mega drought that could span multiple decades. And if we have that and the water just keeps needing to be pumped in and there's nothing coming out of the sky, runoff is too low in the, in the, in the mountains, you know, think we could ha- see cities dry up and we could see things get ugly. And I don't know if it's going to be war, 
But conflict, I don't know. I don't think it's out of the question in the next, you know, 100 years. Things could get bad. I don't know. And we keep talking about how we're a developed country and we're a rich country, but there's no quicker way to, you know, go get poor than to completely lose the one thing humans need to survive right. Um, right. completely. And as you mentioned, you know, Las Vegas and LA are essentially built on the desert. You know, yeah. there's no water there under good circumstances. Or... That's a really good question. What <laughs> happens when we stop, you know, mustering the bullet final, eventually, you know, Sacramento and San Francisco and Colorado, even where a lot of the water is coming, it was going to go like, all right, guys, enough's enough. Let's, let's, let's move, you know, let's yeah, move this whole just operation. Just come up here with us. <laughs> so how's that going to work? You know, there's a whole nother, you know, uh, set of issues to deal with that. If a migration becomes necessary, it's going to be the same thing. Poor people are going to have, you know, a tougher time. There's going to be more turmoil. You know, rich people can probably get up and move to whatever the great lakes the new but yeah there's going to be a lot of thorny issues if and when you know we decide to sort of stop going our you know just twisting ourselves into pretzels to keep these poorly placed cities alive you know right well brian as brian mentioned we are going to get into sci-fi here in particular um i just read a book coming out early next week called ghost fleet it's by friend of Motherboard, Peter W. Singer, who's a fellow at the uh, New America Foundation where he studies cybersecurity. And he co-wrote it with August Cole, who is a non-resident senior fellow at the Brent Scowcroft Center on International Security at the Atlantic Council. I didn't remember that the first time around, but he also runs the Art of Future War Project, which I should have just said in the first place, because they are kind of a Terraform-esque entity in which, you know, they run a lot of uh, fiction about what war might look like in the future. Anyways, uh, Ghost Fleet is a book about an imagined war between the U.S. and China. And it starts off, you, you can't really even tell that, you know, they're at war because there's just a lot of hacking and cyber attacks going back and forth, which is interesting because that's exactly what's happening right now. Um, and luckily we have Lorenzo here who is deep in that world. What sorts of things have we seen, acts of aggression, you know, from from the U.S. as well? Because we are obviously engaged in cyber warfare with places like Iran and North Korea and potentially China um, right now. Yeah, I mean, the premise of the book um, is, you know, the book is might be sci-fi, but the premise is not really sci-fi in the sense that you know, cyber attacks are kind of like daily routine at this point, almost. Uh, you know, just if you go back um, the news the last few months, a uh, couple of years, uh, you're going to see a lot of like headlines like uh, government agency X uh, hacked, uh, government officials believe it's China or Chinese hacker allegedly hacked, uh, blah, blah, blah. So it's it's very easy to see how that could be the start of something else, you know? Um, Interesting. I, let me jump, because this is something that I'm curious about. You know, this isn't, I'm not, I'm not super, I follow the news, but I, based on your reading of sort of the, you know, the, what's going on right now, this is, I wonder what, like, what's it actually like? Are, are we, you know, in there hacking 
other countries actively or is it is it is this a daily sort of push and pull thing where where we're facing cyber attacks from China or from Iran like every day is this is this sort of like going back and forth or do you think it's sort sort of sporadic and targeted and sort of like well organized military campaigns more like like metaphorically well i think that the most i think it's important to make a distinction um i mean you, the term cyber attack is a little bit abused um and especially by government um officials who might not be very well versed in the technology and they think that maybe like a, a, a network scan is an attack but maybe it's just uh, somebody trying to look what to attack in the future but it's not necessarily an attack it's more like a recon mission right, right. but people that don't really know about this stuff they call it an attack because it's easy and sometimes even security companies to like pump up their research call it a cyber attack right so definitely there's stuff like that like you know people scanning networks people looking for holes every day both chinese iranian north koreans and definitely american i mean you know it's easy to think that china is constantly attacking the u.s because u.s out media outlets cover that but you know there have been very few actually but there have been some snowden revelations related to china um and the nsa's mm, and some NSA activities against China, for example, I can remember one off the top of my head, which was uh, the NSA targeting uh, Huawei's uh, engineers to uh, to do espionage on them. And the reason is like obvious because Huawei is a giant um, Chinese tech corporation, and also they have they do a lot of they have a lot of clients in countries, in interesting countries like in the Middle East or Africa. So if you can crack. Uh, Huawei smartphones, then you can listen in on conversations from very interesting targets that might have them. Uh, maybe even targets that think, oh, I'm going to buy a Huawei smartphone because it's Chinese and I'm not going to buy an Apple iPhone because then the Americans are going to spy on it. Um, and so so it's, it's naive to think that only the Chinese are doing it and it's, you know, everyone who can do it is doing it because that's where the future is and that's where the information is. Right. And I don't think either country wants to admit that they're at war with each other at the moment. But there's obviously many different types of cyber attacks. But I think there's, you know, the cyber attack where you want to prove a point like we can hack you and the cyber attacks that are like, we don't want anyone to know that we're doing this because it's really sketchy. And Stuxnet was an example of that, which was in, we believe in NSA and perhaps Israel developed worm um, used to infect um centrifuges at nuclear refinery plants in Iran. And what that did, it was a highly advanced piece of code and it was really hard to trace back to where it came from. And it basically sped up the centrifuges ever so slightly at like weird times and it essentially damaged and broke them. And that's the type of cyber warfare that we're seeing right now where the only reason we find out is because like someone happens to notice it like later on. And isn't it still a lot of it is still kind of messy and there's a lot of code that, that doesn't work. Wasn't there a recent s sort of revelation that there was sort of another attempted Stuxnet in North Korea and it just and it was just like it was a flop, like it didn't work as it, and they found out about it or. I think. Yeah, Reuters reported that um, the NSA in Israel and, and, and just to make a little quick um, note, like the only reason we think it's NSA in Israel is because uh, a government whistleblower said it, like in the code, uh, researchers have, you know, Stuxnet has been studied probably more than any other 
malware in history and nobody has been able to prove uh, you know there's no smoking gun that says this is US yeah. but there was a whistleblower who said it uh, I think to the New York Times or New York Times are a reporter and also it's just like you know who else would would be interested in slowing down Iran's um, nuclear program um, but yeah there was this other revelation about uh, a similar attempt um, against uh, North Korea's own nuclear program but it was botched and it didn't work um, in part because North Korea's um, nuclear plants are not c connected to the internet and their their whole internet infrastructure is so behind that you can't even like use a virus against it. Right. So it is fair to say that the that the bulk of the quote unquote cyber warfare that's taking place today is. Uh, is is data collection really? It's re it's reconnaissance, right? It's like there's. I feel like the malware that is actively trying to do something like Stuxnet was, uh, which another interesting thing is Stuxnet. And also correct me if I'm wrong, but what didn't it sort of get out of the box a little bit and it infected places that it, it wasn't supposed to originally, and it and it did create this other threat where or it was very ill defined and a lot of security researchers weren't exactly sure where it was ending up or what it would do. Uh, which is a, and a very fascinating thing to wrap your head around. But I digress. It's we're still at the stage where it's a lot of a lot of information gathering and sort of it's kind of resembles almost like corporate espionage, right? Where you're trying to get a get a jump on your competition, except it's nation states doing this. Is that yeah? Yes, that's correct. And 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 in fact, like it's important <coughs> to like you know the term cyber war or cyber warfare is also a little bit abused um, in part by, you know, we have to say, we have to admit by journalists because it's like, you know, it's a very catchy term and government uh, government officials use it as well. But as as Brian, is, um, as Brian says, uh, it's been mostly espionage and even Stuxnet, a lot of people argue that it's not an act of, act of war, but it's rather an act of sabotage, uh, meaning which, you know, an act acts of sabotage could eventually lead to war, but by themselves and by the definition of the book are not technically war. Um, but obviously, you know, you you would you could also think what would um, what would have happened if the U.S. instead of using malware would have sent like covert agents inside Iran's nuclear facilities? Would have that been considered an act of war? Maybe, maybe not. Um, I mean, I doubt that Iran would have you know sent a strike back, uh, physical strike back, because I mean that's just not very smart, you know. <laughs> but. The point is, yes, like there's a lot of espionage, it's mostly espionage, it's mostly like collective information, but he, a lot of people think that one day this might turn into kinetic, uh, they use the word kinetic a lot, like, you know, actual physical damage, and Stuxnet did cause actual physical damage, so it's possible that one day maybe the Chinese or the US the, um, spies will be able to get into a water dam and damage it so that it like causes even like loss of life or... Right. The the term that politicians use over and over and they misuse it constantly is this idea of a cyber Pearl Harbor, just like a strike that, you know, knocks off the um, power grid or, you know, damages our water supply or causes like intense harm that would be very, very bad. And it's unclear on whether such an attack is, you know, I guess I guess we've learned that basically anything that can get hacked has been hacked. Like every single week, it's like, oh my god, I didn't even know that was possible for that to get hacked. And it turns out it's way worse than like ever expected. Um, but as Lorenzo mentioned, you know, like the idea of a kinetic attack—one that like 
potentially kills people or like has, you know, has wide ranging, long lasting effects on our infrastructure is one that politicians are constantly warning about. You, you know what I love? I, you know what I love is that oh, I did a couple of pieces on this a, a, a year or two ago uh, in the wake of Sandy uh, looking at all sort of the infrastructure and uh, the, the grid uh, and how easily chunks of it go down um, on in storms and, and stuff. And, and, and yeah, a lot of national security folks talk about how vulnerable the grid is and it kind of turned out i think the times did a, did an investigation of a few uh, maybe it wasn't the times but I, it turned out that like a lot of these like nuclear reactor uh software and the programs that were using these were just so old that it was like very difficult to hack like they were still using like transporting data on floppy disks and on like this was yeah, yeah it's not yeah, our nuclear weapons stash like a lot of it runs on floppy disks which people make fun of but at the same time it's like how are you gonna hack that yeah, like these are most up. of these are like yeah. not even internet connected or actually probably none of them are internet connected i would hope <laughs> so our best <laughs> like our best defense against foreign hackers is just our laziness <laughs> just being like too lazy to upgrade our shit it's defense by um obsolescence <laughs> yeah. More or less. That's, that's a new term but it's pretty yeah. good defense by obsolescence yeah. anyways tweet I, right there I, i'm gonna try that tweet see how it does um i think we should talk to peter singer real quick before we get like too deep into this podcast because i did have a nice conversation with him about the book and what i think is most interesting about this piece of sci-fi which i think we'll talk about when we get back is that this novel has footnotes all over it. So, like, what's the plot real quick? Like, the basic, give us a bullet Yeah, punch. so I don't want to give, like, too much away, but basically what starts it is um, China does a submarine attack in Pearl Harbor, interestingly enough, and at the exact same time, they have their Tiangong 1 or 3 space station. I forget which one it is because by this time, it's like the near future. They're going to have a space station and they, they've developed a laser weapon and they start lasering out all of the, like the U.S.'s satellites and essentially kind of knock us back into like a blind state of war where we don't have constant surveillance on everything and we don't have, uh, you know, we can't use our nukes. Well, we could use our nukes, but that would be kind of have the same problem that we had during the Cold War, which is many, many people would die as and we get, you know, mutually assured destruction. Interesting. But so China's the aggressor. China's the aggressor. Of, of current and new technologies. Yeah, and China is basically just like wiping the floor with us for a while. And then, you know, American ingenuity kind of kicks in a bit. Well, and I won't give away, alert. yeah, I won't give away anything more than that. <laughs> but uh, it's called Ghost Fleet because it's about um, the reserve ghost fleet in the Navy, which is essentially like a bunch of old boats that they didn't want to use. But security by obsolescence, these don't have Chinese parts in them. They can't be hacked by the Chinese. And so we kind of start chipping away with that fleet. And it's a good book. You should read it. It's a quick read. It's a beach read. It's very good. And let's talk to Peter more about it. So normally you write about and discuss and kind of do sort of thinky things about the military. You've written a couple nonfiction books. Why did you decide to, to try your hand at fiction? <laughs> thinky. I, I like that. Um, uh, 
a couple of things at play in this. One is fiction allows you to explore certain worlds, certain scenarios, play out the implications of certain things in a way that's uh, a little bit more difficult in nonfiction. And when we're talking about this realm of World War III, uh, we wanted to run with a certain scenario and play out uh, the implications of certain trends that are happening right now. The second thing is that you can flesh out that world with detail and interesting tidbits in a manner that you probably wouldn't do with a nonfiction. Um, another thing driving is it to, frankly, scratch an itch. Uh, one of the inspirations for the book was um, actually the, the Game of Thrones series. And by that, I mean uh, the style of uh, following not a single character on a single journey but rather multiple characters in multiple places. Sometimes they, they don't even meet. It's just you're, you're telling the story of this world, and that's how we do it in the book. Um, another parallel would be uh, Red Storm Rising by Clancy did this. But um, to go back to that example, uh, George R. R. Martin from Game of Thrones, you know, he said it best, I think he said, all authors are readers first, and all of us write the sort of books we want to read. And so uh, August and I wanted to write the kind of fun, thrilling techno thriller, um, summer beach read, compelling characters, scary things, funny moments. Um, you know, we wanted to bring it all together, you know, the kind of thing that we um, enjoy reading now and we grew up reading. And so it used this, this format. But you know, I need to be clear here. Um, you're aware of this, but maybe some of the listeners aren't. The book is a novel, but it's a smash up still with the nonfiction side. It's a novel but it has over 400 endnotes. And it's a way of uh, both documenting the real world side of everything in the book, you know, whether it be uh, how certain US weapons have been hacked and new Chinese drones to geopolitical trends. So it documents it, um, but it also uh, connects it into bigger policy debates that are out there. Right, yeah, that's what I wanted to talk about, I guess, the most because um, you know, you're reading the book and all of a sudden it mentions an event that happened, you know, last year or a planned space uh, space station like the Tiangong 3, you know, that's going to be launched in 2022. So obviously this is a very well-informed book and it's well-informed by your work at the New America Foundation and as a military expert. So, uh, I mean, in reading this, it almost felt like it was real like it, it's it's a highly realistic uh look at what world war three might look like and uh in that sense it's it's more speculative than than anything um i just want to congratulate you on that because it was it was really cool reading something that felt real and that had these like elements of reality in it um, oh i mean thanks it's <laughs> it's uh, really kind of you and that that um, is what we're after. And, and again, that's, you know, good fiction um, feels real. I mean, so Game of Thrones, there's dragons in it, but yet the characters act in highly realistic manners. Or um, World War Z, there's zombies, and yet it's that's the one thing that's not real, and everybody else acts in fairly realistic manners. And so we, you know, tried to do the same with the fiction um, but you know, there's a there's a process to it to circle back to the nonfiction side. You know, and, and and sometimes it was the research that drove the fiction forward. So, for example, 
the scenario um, and the scenes were informed by a series of actual Pentagon war games that I helped organize mm-hmm. uh, that essentially were playing out what would happen if there were certain technologies were used in certain ways in certain settings. Uh, we also did, um, as you noted, you know, there's all sorts of research that you know, reveals um, everything from problems with certain weapon systems to uh, what's on the wall of the Chinese Defense Academy. And so you're getting, you know, you're getting the, um, the, the real side is driving the fiction. Uh, you want to, in the drive to make it real, you, we also met with the real people, both expected and sometimes unexpected, who would fight in a World War III. So we met with everything from U.S. Navy captains to fighter pilots to special operations to Chinese generals to, you know, the unexpected side, uh, Silicon Valley venture capitalists, anonymous hackers. You know, these are all groups that are going to play a role in war. And so in these discussions, you're, you're um, going after, you know, realism in a couple of ways. You're going after, you know, learning from them. So uh, from special operations forces, um, what are tricks of the trade that you've picked up from the Taliban that you might use back against someone else? Or when you're trying to depict a um, future uh, dogfight of um, jet fighters, so you're you know meeting with an F-22 pilot, okay, what kind of moves might you pull? But you're also going for the realism in a different way where it's, okay, what's your attitude? What are you thinking um, how do you feel about the fact that there might be a drone flying alongside you in this fifth generation dogfight? You know, what does that feel like? Or um, with the Chinese uh, general, it's not just what they might say, but um, what historic references are they pulling and what does that mean? Or, you know, the kind of look that a Navy captain gets when he's making small talk before the interview about his kids. Uh, so, you know, you're using the, 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 the people to add flesh to both the fiction and the nonfiction side. You know, but the funny thing of the project, one thing to add is that sometimes it's um, the fiction that led first and then we didn't realize that the, the nonfiction would follow. Uh, and so that might be looking backwards. So there's one character who um, is essentially a murderer. I don't want to give too much away, but she's a murderer who's taking advantage of the, the chaos of war. And she was inspired by this um, amalgam of uh, there's a John Steinbeck story. There's the series Dexter, which was both, you know, the novels and the Showtime series about this serial killer that, you know, you're kind of uncomfortable whether you should be cheering for him or not. Um, and then there was a really awesome uh, year of Battlestar Galactica, the TV show, the one that a lot of people call Battlestar Arctica, that played with the idea of insurgency but flipping the script. So it's, she's an amalgam of that, these fictions. And yet when I was talking um, to a military friend uh, who later read a, uh, a, um, an early version of the book, he thought we had gotten the idea from this real-world insurgent in Iraq who um, U.S. intelligence had basically figured out was just this, was a murderer who was you know, essentially posing as if he was an insurgent, but he was really just a murderer. Um, we've even had this, this play out in the geopolitics, you know, the idea of a war between U.S. and China and Russia um, was a little bit more um, you know, pushing the envelope when we first sold the book three years ago. But, you know, goodness, yesterday, the Chinese regime newspaper literally said, quote, um, it said, quote, war is inevitable, 
between the U.S. and China, end quote, and went on to say, if the U.S. doesn't change its policies in the Pacific, that is, it's saying war is inevitable. Now, I don't, that's, that's posturing, but the point is that, you know, we've entered a realm of uh, great power tension that makes the themes in the book feel all the more realistic. And that's, that's, you know, good for the book, not good for the world. Same thing when you look at what's playing out. Um, NATO is at its highest points of tension. So we've gone from thinking about Europe being uh, at peace to hold it. We've got an active war there in Ukraine. We've got um, probes by Soviet bombers of NATO's borders. So this this bigger story of um, great power competition and how a proto-Cold War might turn hot, you know, it's a fiction in the book, but frankly, it's a nonfiction that the military is planning for. And that's why the book is a novel, but it's having such impact. Right, right. And I just want to touch on this really quickly, just because you brought it up. But when I was reading the book, you know, that you mentioned this murderer and she is a murderer, but I also thought of her as an insurgent because she was generally killing, you know, Chinese and, and Russian soldiers. And she was doing it because she had something kind of against them. So, uh, I mean, is that line blurred um, when you have kind of this like foreign invader? It's- That's what it's it's playing with this idea um, of uh well, with her, it's the idea of what makes someone a killer and how do we look at, how do we understand that killer um, and whether it's right or wrong. Right. And um, and so, you know, it's inspired, again, both by these fictions, but also we did real world research on um, what we know about serial killers. And, you know, there's debates in the field as to whether they are made by the experience, whether they are born that way, whether it's a combination of um, certain moments that maybe um, release this. But um, so the idea is to, to play with this where, you know, in, in many ways you are cheering for her and hoping that she doesn't get caught. And then there's these, hold it, uh, actually, maybe I'm starting to feel better about this Russian uh, Spetsnaz guy that's uh, hunting her. Um, you know, I don't want to give too much away, but, you know, it's, 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 it's playing with these notions. But the other thing that her character plays with is um, uh, it's a story of both insurgency but also crime. How can you carry out these acts within a world of ever more surveillance. Um, and so she, you know, a world of big data, a world of drones, a world of DNA tracking. Um, how does she get away with it? Which is also a story of how people will get away with it in the future. And she's also a little bit of, you know, using low tech means against these high tech. Um, she's paralleled though by another character who's carrying out a more classic insurgency. It's a group of, um, U.S. veterans that are behind enemy lines, and they're the ones using the the tricks that they picked up in the sandbox, the sandbox being today's wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and using those uh, tricks and tools of the trade. And again, here we're playing with a couple of things. It's both, a, you know, it's an awesome story. It's fun. But also uh, we're looking at um, the low-tech versus high-tech, except the the script is flipped and now we're on the side of the insurgent rather than the other way around. It also, um, one of the reviewers for the book, uh, you know, besides people like um, military folks and literary, there's even um, philosophers and ethicists that are looking at it because they're saying this is wrestling with the ideas of right and wrong and insurgency and what do we think is right and wrong and is, is it context dependent? So, you know, when you, um, when you break the rules 
um, when you you know do a roadside bombing, how do you look at it? And this is a story, you know, again, it's it's been cool to play with in fiction, but the history side of this goes back to you know the American Revolution, where you can go back and read the diaries of um, British soldiers, where they they're they're so angry about the fact that these rebels won't follow the rules, and it's almost word for word the kind of things that are said uh, today in places like Iraq or Afghanistan. So we're we're playing with a lot of different themes here. Right, right. An interesting thing I thought was that you essentially took out the Middle East by having this disaster that's mentioned but not um, not explicitly written about, I guess. Um, and then you kind of transport that insurgency from the Middle East that we see today um, to Hawaii. Um, what, was that just because it worked better with the story? Or, I mean, you obviously wanted to get the idea of insurgency in there. Um, and you had to contain it, I would suspect, because, you know, you want to tell a narrative story without having, you know, the entire world be involved and, like, with the reader being able to follow along with what's happening. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so the, the Middle East um, isn't taken out in terms of it's, it doesn't exist anymore. It's right. just not um, a key setting for the story. The, um, the story takes place in um, really the way to think, I think about it is, is domains. Um, and, and this is, you know, it's an interesting difference with the war. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. ...of today in the Middle East, but also... Um, both the same and different with the last time the great powers went to war, World War II. So the wars of today against uh, ISIS or a Taliban, um, really uh, the f- where we are being fought is on the land. We have utter air dominance, other, utter dominance at sea. We can go anywhere we want. There's no opposition. Um, we're using space and cyberspace, but there's no opposition. If there was a war with a great power, um, with a with a Russia, with a China, it would be different because you would see it playing out in these multiple domains, and so it'd be a lot like World War II, where you had fighting, you know, on the ground, in the air, at sea. The difference, though, is that it's not the 1940s anymore, and so there's these two new domains: space and cyberspace, where you're also going to see conflict, and and how those play out will shape. The success or failure in these other domains. So you know that's to me um, the the setting, so to speak, of this of the stories. In not so much geographic, but these different locales, and we follow the different characters in them. Right. Um, can we, we weren't... touch? Can we touch on those two domains real quick? So, uh, yeah. Space and cyberspace, because those were some of my favorite parts of the book. And um, I, I hate to give a lot away, but I, I just you know we're kind of our asses are kicked in both space and cyberspace by, you know, Chinese hackers and by um, this new space weapon that they have. And that kind of sets the scene for the rest of the book. America is on its back foot and trying to reestablish a level playing field. Do you see, uh, I mean, today, what, what is your, um, do you think that we, that China has dominance over us in those domains? Obviously, maybe not in space yet, but do you think that China has the willingness to kind of create 
space debris and all these other sort of things that, you know, taking out a bunch of satellites would entail. I mean, the way to think about it is um, one of the real world worries here is that there are a series of assumptions that are baked into both the sides' military plans. And, um, you know, spoiler alert, in both fiction and real war, the result is not typically war begins, good guys kick butt, the end. You know, like this just, right. um, it is a much more complex story and people's plans don't work out the way they expect, both for the good guys and the bad guys. Um, so, you know, I won't ruin it that way. But the to go to the real world side for you, um, these two no, these two domains, space and cyberspace, um, we are, uh, they've helped enable us to be um, powerful, uh, but they also open up incredible vulnerabilities because of how dependent on them we are. And you can think of cyberspace as not just the, the hacking side, but also um, even the hardware side. So, uh, you know, giving an illustration of the contact between the nonfiction and the fiction, um, one of the um, nonfiction aspects that the book points out is how over 70% of microchips and um, the new generation of U.S. jet fighters are made in China. Mm-hmm. It's not, not in the future, but this is real. And, you right. know, go, go check the footnote for it. What the fiction does is then says, okay, what if? What if you are in a war with someone who provides 70 plus percent of the chips inside your weapons? What might they do? Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> you can come up with some pretty interesting things that they might do right. um, that would, you know, you use the phrase kick butt. Uh, <laughs> um, same thing, you know, space. Uh, it's a domain through which almost all our command and control, our communications, GPS, you name it, all depend on. So what happens if you um, kick that leg out? Um, and there's both a, a story of, you know, um, how dependent we are, but then you get a fascinating story that, you know, is both cool, but, um, maybe real is that the story of how you'll have all this incredible high technology, you know, you'll like say hackers, autonomous drones, um, whatever, but we won't have the same kind of, um, awareness, the same kind of intelligence that we have today where we always know where we are and we always know where the enemy is and what they're doing. Instead, weirdly, it might actually, the technology on both sides kind of nullify each other. And so it takes you back. You'll have all this super high technology, but it might take you back to fights a lot like World War One or World War Two, where, um, you know, think of it almost like a game of battleship where, you know, there's certain things that you know, but there's a lot that you don't. Um, and that includes where you are and where the bad guy is. And, and so that's the, um, again, both, I think, a compelling, you know, it, it leads to some really cool stories and scenes and moments, but also it is a real world issue right now. And to give you the, the pointed illustration of it, at the U.S. Naval Academy this year, they made two big changes. Um, first, They've created a cyber warfare center and created the first class of midshipmen that will be cybersecurity majors. Mm-hmm. Second, they required that every midshipman learn how to do celestial navigation like they did back in the 1700s. Oh, so wow. we're preparing both for a world of cyber warfare and, oh my goodness, what if I have to go back to navigating by the stars? 
that's crazy. I had no idea that yeah you know, that, that happened. Um, you just mentioned you know what happens when seventy percent of our microchips are made by a country we're at war with, and that segues pretty good into something I wanted to talk about, which is you are an expert in this, these things, and not to kind of downplay how difficult it is to write a book. But was there ever a sense when you were doing this that this story almost writes itself when you know so much about you, you know it's like what if this scenario happens you can almost like foresee how it would play out given your expertise in the field and given you know how wars have gone in the past was it just like oh you know if like if we go to war with china of course they will hack our microchips of course they'll do this of course but it's funny because that, that's that's completely contrary to the inclinations and you know i'm talking to you from washington dc where everything's always about um how good my product is and how everything will work out. Um, it, you know, we, we always plan for the best, um, assume perfection. And, 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 and look, you know, we know it doesn't work out that way either in history um, or, uh, you know, in, in defense budget, however you want to frame it. Um, and yet we just keep doing it. And I don't know if it's uh, um, something about our politics or something about, you know, our identity or whatever it is, but um, no, it's, it's actually in some ways kind of contrarian. Um, for me, the, you know, there's different things that were uh, easier, more difficult. Um, one of the tools I would use is that uh, I just keep a little notepad. And whenever I was in a meeting, I'd often pick up something that um, might be a cool factoid. It might be an anecdote. It might be a joke someone makes. Um, it might be just, uh, the way they sit and I'd, I'd write it down. And, um, over time it built up this just treasure, uh, trove of, um, lots of cool little things to weave in. And again, sometimes there, as you were noting, um, you know, things that might happen. Oh, if someone did X, this would happen. So, you know, you, um, uh, walk into a facility and, um, uh, someone, <laughs> uh, you know, the, they forget to they forget to take away your cell phone, and you're like, "Oh, that's not smart." <laughs> um, uh, other times, it may be a history that people don't know much about. So, one of the things that I, I think is a cool story within the book is an actual real story. One of the the storylines plays with um, the role that Silicon Valley might play in a in an actual war. You know, it's not the 1940s anymore. Uh, the center of the American economy is not Detroit. It's it's the mix of Silicon Valley and, and Bentonville, Arkansas, where Walmart is headquartered. And so it plays with that storyline. But the opening to that scene tells the little known story of how Silicon Valley got its start, which started with a Navy blimp base back in the 1920s. And most people don't know this. And it tells the story and documents it. And, and that that to me is, again, that was a factoid picked up actually from when I... Uh, visited that facility that now is uh google uses it um it's you know that big massive hangar complex that's outside san francisco airport people don't know that that's the origin of silicon valley mm -hmm, mm -hmm. can you talk to me a little bit about writing this book with another person you worked with august cole who is at the american security project has done you know many of the same things you have how, how did you or at least works in sorry works in the same realm as you how did uh, this play out? How did you go about team writing a book? Sure. So August um, is 
like me in terms of he's someone that comes out of the nonfiction realm. He was actually uh, the defense reporter for Wall Street Journal for many years and uh, moved over to the policy side. Uh, the two of us both love fiction, though, and have done extensive work with fiction. Uh, so, for example, uh, besides my work with the Pentagon and the intelligence community, I've also advised fiction projects like uh, the Call of Duty series. Mm-hmm. Um, so we you know, developed a, a fun partnership. And uh, in many ways, the, the, the writing process was um, we jokingly think of it as one of the things that we play with in the book, which is 3D printing. Uh, so someone would um, design uh, a, a, a section of it. The other one would take it, layer over it, rejigger it. The other one would take it, that, and then layer over it and build something more. So the original story um, started as like a roughly 20-page treatment. Then that was fleshed out into a 40-page one. Then that was turned into a 100-page one. Um, and then, you know, uh, we, uh, I think our original draft was, you know, you know, how many hundreds of pages of text. And then, then just like in 3d printing, you've gone from layering it to your next is okay. I got to shave it down. Um, and so you're cutting things, you're tightening things. And so that, that's how it's, it's a constant back and forth. Um, that's how we did it. So that it also retained a, um, unified voice. Uh, I know some writers do it where one per- person does a chapter and the other person does a different chapter, but to me that would make it feel very different. Instead, um, by the end, it's hard to figure out who actually, we literally don't know <laughs> who wrote what, and it would probably cause um, Microsoft Word to collapse if you try to do a track changes. Right, right, right. Um, this is a question we probably should have gotten out of the way at the beginning. But what can you tell me about this world that uh, you know you're writing about? the The U.S. is at war with the Directorate, I guess. Which, to me, I, I may be wrong here, but it seems like it's the business interests of China. Um, so, what what the the story of the book um, is essentially? It moves forward this brewing. Um, proto-Cold War that we have with China and Russia and plays a series of uh, what-ifs. The overall what-if is what if uh, this brewing Cold War, which let's be very clear, is real. Um, You know, as we mentioned, we have tensions between NATO and Russia from land grabs in the Ukraine to disputes in um, Asia arm both the U.S. military strategy, um, what's known as the offset, uh, and the new Chinese military strategy that was released earlier this week, they're both deliberately designed at the other. Um, you have a wide array of discussion on it. Um, you know, as I mentioned, the, the quote from the Chinese newspaper to uh, there was another article that said, quote, we must bear the third world war in mind when building our military forces. It was written by a um, PLA officer. So it's real. Like it or not, I don't like it, but there's real tensions. Mm-hmm. So what the book does is plays the the what if. What if a war was to break out? Um, and then, as, as you note, there's some other things that it that it plays with in this future. So it's not today. It's the you know the day after tomorrow, so to speak. So it's not the Chinese military of today, but it's where it's trending towards, um, which is uh, you know building global capabilities and um, weapon systems that range from aircraft carriers to submarines to you name it. 
to um, some of the other uh, trends are what's playing out within the internal politics of China. If you think China is um, communist in the Marxist-Leninist term, you know, you're wrong. Um, instead, it's uh, you know a, a cross between a, a technocratic and a economic and a military elite. And so um, it plays with that idea. As you mentioned, um, the Middle East is not a uh, setting for the book, but um, there's a, a what if, which is essentially looking at how fragile the Saudi um, uh, regime is and, and the House of Saud. And, you know, as we move on. Um, and so, again, we're not using uh, crazy, uh, you know, what if space aliens landed um, right. instead, it's, you know, things drawn from the real world. And then once you make that turn, then you move forward in a highly realistic manner. Um, and all the characters, again, are drawn from real people, uh, how they would act, inspired by And so, you know, sometimes people might uh, recognize them. Um, other times they're an amalgam. Uh, and that amalgam, again, might be anything from the way someone talks to the moves they might do in a, in a dogfight to, um, you know, the haircut. <laughs> right, right. Um, you run in military circles, obviously. It's your job. Um, the book's not out yet um, when we're recording this, but I assume, you know, some of your sources and people you uh, know have, have read it. Um, what, what has been the response from people who are in the military to, to the book so far? It's been great. Um, and so it worked in a, in a series. I mean, so first, as I mentioned, we um, did these meetings to, to build the world. Then once we uh, had the draft, the people who helped uh, edit it wasn't just the, the editor at the publisher, but also, again, um, people from these different worlds. So, you know, giving the destroyer captain the scene about um, the destroyer at sea. And that helps you get the feedback to make sure that you're getting not just the big macro, but you're getting the micro level details, even, you know, certain wording things and the like. Um, how someone takes their coffee, uh, what do they think about it, you know, that, right. even down to that level. Um, then it, uh, there was a, and, and I should mention one of the things that the feedback we got from them um, was really gratifying was not just how we were documenting certain things really well, but I remember, um, to use that illustration of a destroyer captain, he, um, what what grabbed him the most was not just the, realism and the technical means, but um, how it captured that struggle that a commanding officer has between his responsibility to his ship and to his family and how it's just, um, it can tear someone apart from the inside and how they feel like they're, they're never able to meet both demands fully. And he, he, he really captured, he said, you know, that, that's what struck me about it. Um, a uh, another officer commented on um, how we dealt with certain uh, social issues uh, within the military and how we see them playing out, specifically um, uh, gays in the military and trends towards it. Um, then there was a next wave where the book comes out on June 30th, but early versions of it are already started to circulate among the top leadership of the U.S. military. Um, in a way, to go back to our conversation about um, fiction versus nonfiction, my nonfiction books have done rather well and they're on all the reading lists and the like, but this is getting a wider reading 
especially among senior leaders. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's because it's a novel. And so it's a lot easier for the staff officer to say, you know, uh, hey, sir, on the plane, got this novel for you to read rather than here's another memo. Um, and the result, though, is that the, even before the book came out, it's already shaping internal Pentagon debates and plans on everything from strategy in the Pacific to robotics, 3D printing, you name it. And um, that's you know, been remarkable when I pull back and you know, put my, my policy wonk hat on versus my, my fiction writer hat, you know, wearing both. And um, it's in many ways having as much of an impact or in some ways, maybe even more. And the book hasn't even come out yet. This is just inside the halls of the Pentagon. And that's um, why you're seeing this really, uh, maybe one of the most gratifying things of it is this wonderful, strange, unique mix of fans of it, uh, so to speak, where um, among the people that have uh, endorsed it um, have been everything from the commander of NATO for the military side to uh, the writer of HBO Game of Thrones, who, you know, doesn't care about the military side, he cares about uh, fiction, and he's a master at it. And the fact that both of them are reacting really well to uh, the book has just been um, incredible. Uh, It's been, you know, really rewarding. You mentioned that you wanted to make this, like, a beach read, and you are... You know, you wanted to try on your fiction hat, and I actually read it at the beach. It's a very quick read. It's very, like, it, the pacing's great. It, it moves along. It's very fun to read. But at the same time, you mentioned, you know, this is influencing debate at the Pentagon. And I would imagine people who read this are going to think a little harder about some of these issues. Was that something that you set out to do when you when you wrote this? I mean, did you want to kind of influence did you want it to be an influential book in that sense? Like it, it could have the ability to influence policy or at least, uh, you know, raise some questions that haven't been raised by, you know, events that have happened. Absolutely. I hoped, um, I dreamed that it would, it would be both. Um, you know, I remember when I was a kid reading Tom Clancy's Red Storm Rising in the back of my mom's station wagon on the way to the beach. (laughs) And I remember staying, it was such a great read, staying inside uh, for a couple of the the early days of the vacation, um, finishing the book and, you know, not getting my um, regular uh, turning into a lobster (laughs) pattern of beach vacations. And yet, you know, so it was a great, you know, that was my experience with early Tom Clancy. And um, yet, you know, Clancy was also had had fans in the Pentagon and um, in the White House even. Uh, And, you know, reportedly they were worried that he was um, leaking secrets. You know, there was a moment in this book, um, in his book back in the 1980s, where he talks about this new plane that is stealth. uh, And um, he's writing about it uh, two years before the Air Force reveals that it actually does have a stealth plane. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, that was, uh, that's a pretty cool model. and, And so I wanted to hopefully create that experience for readers, you know, that, that want to have an exciting, fun, compelling read. Um, and like you say, you know, fast pace and, and, um, I'm influenced by the things that, that I read and love and, you know, I've mentioned them, whether it be, you know, Red Storm Rising or another model was, um, uh, Winds of War, not just in terms of the, 
uh, the, the multiple locations, uh, multiple ca- characters around the world, but there's also a um, father-son-navy duo that's both in our book and in Winds of War. Uh, you know, I mentioned World War Z game, and you know, influenced by those are earlier science fiction. Um, you know, uh, an example would be um, uh, Arthur Conan Doyle wrote a story called Danger right before World War One that uh, explored in fiction the idea of this new kind of machine that had recently been science fiction. He called it a submarine. And he explored, well, what would happen if this was used in a war? And um, he um, projected, uh, the story is about the submarine being used on a blockade of Great Britain and it attacks civilian shipping. And what's fascinating is you go back, and he writes this right before World War I, and um, the British Admiralty goes public to mock him for this idea, saying, you know, no Navy would, would, would ever use submarines this way. They're not, a, they're not only are they not a risk, but this would be a violation of the laws of war. Then World War I starts, and very soon after it begins, first a submarine sinks three British battleships in one day. It's just an incredible shock to the system. And then... They start using submarines and they carry out what Conan Doyle had projected, this blockade of Great Britain that nearly starves it. And so that's, you know, an old school um, example of the role that that fiction can play in the interplay with nonfiction. And so, you know, I, I was inspired by that and wanted to run with it. But on the other hand, um, I can't get away from my uh, roots. Um, and so that's the reason for the footnotes, um, to place it within the field, to have it serve as a useful tool for people who want to understand the future of um, technology, uh, the future of war. Um, It's for people who are interested in whatever that item is to go learn more about it. And then, oh, by the way, it proves that I didn't leak any classified information because here's the footnote on it. Right, right, right. Okay, well, thank you so much, Peter. It's it's a great book, um, Ghost Fleet. Um, Hopefully our listeners will pick it up. I highly recommend it. Um, Thank you for joining us and... We're going to talk a little bit more about it before, I guess, we let everyone else go. But I'll let you go. All right. Thanks for having me. So without giving away much more, we kind of touched on it in the interview and right before the break. But there's very little, like, there's no, like, tank battles in this book. There's no, like, you know, machine guns and rows of battalions of soldiers fighting. It's mostly, like, cyber warfare like robotic warfare. And at the same time, it's like insurgency as well because the U.S. has kind of lost many of these capabilities. And Brian was just kind of telling us off air here about how war isn't really fought by soldiers anymore or not quite as much as it used to be. Would you like to expound on that? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it just seems that, I mean, less and less anyways, right, Um, among these countries that have these military industrial complexes, you know, it's more and more we're, we're putting fewer troops on the ground and flying more drones and we're, you know, quote unquote, hacking more. We have we have more sort of elite technicians um, and same is true of China, of Russia, of just about everywhere. So it kind of seems like there's like this inter- interesting interplay between the interests of of a nation state of like of like a federal government and the those who are conducting the war it's more more and more sort of divorced from the actual citizenry um 
of a of of one of these states like that. And so I think you know these two twin trends that we've discussed here, uh, climate change really sort of putting uh, the globe into into turmoil and sort of will probably be forcing mass migrations and some resource conflicts and that kind of thing. And that'll be kind of happening. I don't know. I mean, it kind of see it'll be an interesting world in which this is happening. But the big, quote unquote, wars, you know, or between the conflicts between big nations will be happening sort of on a technical scale. So it's just interesting to think about these two separate uh, sort of conflicts. One, which is like old as time, like a fighting over, uh, you know, cropland and, and resources and water. And then the other, which is like I, mean, I don't even know anymore. Like I don't I don't know what the hell they're hacking for. Like I don't know what what data the NSA is after in you know Iran's archives. Like we we have literally no idea. Once in a while we get like a glimmer. We get like a snippet, right? Snowden will release some docs or you know WikiLeaks will and we'll say like oh shit like we were watching Angela Merkel over there for some reason and there's just so much we don't know, right? Yeah, I mean, in a way, they also they just they just collect data because they can and they have the means and it's relatively cheap, and you know one day it might be useful. You know, maybe North Korea, North Korea is a bad example because they have so they have so little connectivity. But you know, in Iran, for example, yeah, right now we're negotiating. It's relatively peaceful our relationship with them, but you know, you you have to think that they're collecting data in case something goes wrong, in case Iran goes crazy and bombs Israel or vice versa, and and then you need to like go in and shut down their infrastructure, just like in the book, right? The, in this case, we wouldn't shut down their satellites. Maybe we'll try to shut down their uh, weapons industries. But, you know, if you can do it remotely or if you can do it with a drone instead of sending people in harm's way, then you'll do it that way. And I You guess- also have plausible deniability when it's, you know, a hacker. As we yeah. kind of mentioned, it's hard to figure out who did this, even though it's like, Oh well, the U.S. has you know you know one of the best cyber capabilities, and we don't like Iran at the moment, and you know, and their all their new sites just broke. Who could have done this? <laughs> um, but you know, this is also briefly mentioned in the book. Now you have all these third parties. You have hacktivists. You have anonymous. You have ISIS. You have like just these kind of like cogs or wrenches that can kind of get in the system, the gears of the system, and you don't know who is doing what. And, you know, who knows if if this Sony hack was North Korea. Like, we think it was probably North Korea, but, like, maybe it was not North Korea. We don't really know. And that's feasible. Somebody could have just made it look like they were North Korea, right? It could have been somebody, they could have left a trail to make it, make us guess that it was North Korea, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think I'm still among the very few that, I mean, there's actually like a pretty um, large group of people that still don't believe that it was North Korea, or at least are saying, I want to see the proof. I want to see the data. I want to see the smoking gun. And you haven't shown me any, any of this. And so, yes, like it's plus, maybe one day we'll go to war to China and instead of, you know, it wasn't China that actually hacked us, but it was a bunch of teenagers in Syria. Uh, and, you know, everything will, will look very dumb and people might die because of that. It's, it sounds really stupid to say now, but one day it might happen. Yeah. I want to touch on this really quickly. I know it's we should wrap it up soon, but there was a talk at the RSA conference last year called... Um, the next world war will be fought in Silicon Valley. And it's kind of about how the NSA has co-opted like Google servers and has co-opted, you know, all this, all Cisco's systems that we sell to China and how 
you know, the NSA has kind of been using technology to fight a covert war, if you want to call it that, against essentially the rest of the world when, you know, we're shipping out all these bugged hard drives and bugged uh, routers and bugged SIM cards. Um, you're kind of collecting data as though you're kind of at war. And Silicon Valley is maybe sort of complicit in it, but also it's hard to say whether you can blame them or not. But that that's kind of neither here nor there. But I'm wondering if we do go to something that we can kind of consider a full-fledged world war, if you will, you know, we talk about, you know, these skirmishes in Afghanistan and Iraq and maybe conflicts is a better word than skirmishes. But um, if we start fighting China, for instance, right now, Google and Facebook and everyone else kind of ignores the war that's going on. But what happens if we are in this kind of full, full-fledged war? Do you think that Silicon Valley is going to like lend their support? Because at the moment, they are certainly like more capable than basically anyone else perhaps on earth at things like surveillance like google knows more about everyone than anyone except maybe the nsa you know facebook likewise so what do you think a full-fledged like world war three looks like with silicon valley buy-in that's i never thought of that but like just thinking about it now it's very it's fascinating because you could think about, you know, let's say, just like in the book, uh, China and U.S. go at war at each other. Then you have, I mean, you know, technically you could do this. Like the U.S. could go to Apple and be like, okay, we need to bug every Chinese iPhone out there. And you can do it because you can just push a, an update, uh, like an invisible update to every iPhone in the world and turn it into a wiretapping machine. They could do that. So you could even imagine China anticipating this and saying <laughs> to all their citizens, throw, you know, destroy your iPhone as soon as possible, you know, throw it in the water, do some, you know, get rid of it. So let me ask you, though, so in that case, what, and maybe we're just going down the rabbit hole here, but so what is the practical use of that data? Like, do we have sophisticated enough uh, technology? Do we have enough server space to be able to collect and process that amount of data in a meaningful way that could be used to like inform say a, a military maneuver or something like that because that seems crazy to me i would just very quickly like to point you to the plot of furious 7 in which the god's eye bugs every single smartphone and smartphone microphone in the entire world in order to track down people so I don't think that we have that capability yet, but Hollywood has imagined it. And in that same thing case, in, uh, we could use it to, you know... Dark Knight, right? He does the same thing, the whole city. He, yeah, more or less. Yeah. And also the same thing in Black Hat, which is a very bad <laughs> hacking movie that came out last like winter. I think you were half of all the entire people that saw it. I think yeah. so, too. Um, um, but sorry, you had a very good question. What is the utility of data like that? Well, I mean, I don't have an answer. Yeah. Well, well, there were two questions. Uh, one was, can we collect it? And the answer is, who knows? But also, remember that the NSA is building this giant data center in Utah, and it's like bigger than anybody has ever seen and bigger than anybody even imagines. And so who knows? Uh, you know, they might actually be building that, uh, thinking one day we might need it. You know, it's like when you want to buy a new hard drive and you're thinking, well, I have 200 gigs of photos, but maybe in six years I'll have... Uh, uh, 600, so I'm, I might as well just buy a one terabyte hard drive, right? Yeah. So, and wh why 
what can we do with this data? Well, you know, the, NS the U.S. already uses data collected electronically to target uh, people with drones. Uh, it was actually, uh, I think, Michael Aiden, the former CIA and NSA director, that said, we kill people based on metadata. And that metadata is uh, collected from cell phone conversations, uh, chat conversations, yeah. emails. So you could imagine that maybe, you know, the best Chinese hacker who attacks the U.S. uses an iPhone and we might be able to find out where he is because we turn his iPhone into a bugging device. Yeah. And two weeks ago, maybe even last week, the U.S. killed someone in ISIS, killed like an entire ISIS hangout based on a selfie. Is, yes. is that That's what happened, right? Yeah, that's pretty much what happened. Not, not a lot of details came out, but the Pentagon said that um, the, the, the airstrike or um, that destroyed like a full uh, base, as you said, an ISIS uh, compound, uh, they were able to find the location um, starting from a picture posted on, um, they said social media, they didn't say Twitter, but you could, yeah, you know, they're so active on Twitter that presumably somebody posted like a, uh, a tweet with a picture and based on what was on that picture, people, um, you know, the analysts at the Pentagon were able to d determine the location. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's no. I, I guess I, there's no doubt in my mind that they can they, they can fish this out and they can and they they use the data in in targeted campaigns and and, and whatnot. So I guess we're not that far off from sort of having a, a something resembling more of like a real time intake and and a more fluid system of. Yeah, I guess it's just a little terrifying to think about. Yeah, that's that's just what I found compelling about this book is that. All of this stuff is like, oh, that sounds crazy. And then there's a little footnote. And then it's like, this is basically out of a congressional report that says we should worry about this. Or this is this actually this is a real hack that already happened. Or like this technology is already in development. And that's not something you see a lot in science fiction or speculative fiction, I don't think. But um, that's it's kind of makes it like a new breed of sci-fi, I guess. You could definitely speak more to that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's interesting. I think one of the I, I keep racking my brain, and we have there's a lot of you know, a lot of our science fiction loves sort of to sort of like blow up the old school mode of combat. Like it's Star Wars is a good example. It's it's armies fighting each other just in space and with ships that like fly through the cosmos instead of sail through waters. It's just like kind of, and, and, and that's like been what's informed a lot of our sci-fi until pretty recently. And the, the, the cyberpunk stuff that kind of disrupted that old school sort of militaristic starship troopers style uh, sci-fi has been mostly concerned with with corporate espionage again uh, and 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 it's kind of did sort of like foreshadow and it, I think it does inform the way that we think about this kind of uh, you know this this kind of occurrence this kind of sort of behind the scenes we're in a labyrinth of green numbers and you know getting into the mainframe and 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 there's two sides trying to out hack each other. And I think that that's pretty, you know, obviously outmoded now. And I do think that there is like kind of a dearth. I was trying to rack my brain. I can't really think of much that has both, right? That that has like a real world that's under resource stress and the speculative sort of 
warfare that's actually happening sort of on shitty NSA computers, or they probably have really good computers, but, <laughs> uh, you know, that, that it intertwines those together. So that I want to read, sci-fi authors of America and the world. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, if you have any ideas, you can write a short story for Terraform, our speculative science fiction. Email yeah. Terraform SF. We actually, I will comment on this one. Yeah, oh yeah, it's uh, terraform.motherboard at gmail.com and send us submissions and stuff. It's, it's fun. We run good stuff. Uh, my, the, the best story explicitly about war that we've run so far was sort of this, uh, this sort of... Uh, world in which there's om- there was soldiers are almost kind of like mercenaries and they they each have their own social media tags so that they're kind of cheered on they have followers and you can you could basically you know follow along and get and they get revenue from being over there so they try to like as if they're in a video game they try to get like a crazy headshot at something that gets replay replayed and turns into a meme so this is you know it's it's clearly not really relevant to what we're talking about here it's more of kind of like taking the Colosseum sort of vibe and transposing it onto like a future of mercenary war but that was a fun one it's called headshot it's called the hunger games (laughs) (laughs) just kidding it's called headshot anyways thank you guys as always for listening i'm jason kebler i'm brian merchant i'm lorenzo francesco vicari thanks to kevin Gibo for editing us as always i i usually forget to call him out but he does a very good job with this anyways subscribe to us on itunes etc see you next week Bye bye